Hey, this is Rob and that's Micaiah. And you are listening to You Forgot One today on You Forgot One, Curtis Mayfield's Superfly soundtrack. Micaiah, maybe the best soundtrack of all time. Certainly the best black exploitation soundtrack of all time. What do we need to know right up top about Curtis Mayfield Superfly? I mean, it's only rivaled probably be Purple Rain. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, both are soundtracks that are made not to sound like soundtracks. You know, it's like they they are albums, but they're also soundtracks. They kind of, you know, it's it's, it's an interesting thing that Prince, who's definitely indebted to Curtis Mayfield, kind of interesting decisions that they've made on how to approach these soundtracks um but superfly uh curtis mayfield had released a few records with the impressions and then he went solo and released a couple of studio albums and a live album and then this um which you know was kind of the midpoint in a really great 70s run uh for him of just like great um many of them just truly exceptional records of the era um yeah, this is another one that you're going to find on the great list of the albums of the 70s. And it's it's on the Rolling Stone 500 and the Pitchfork Decades list, right? It's it's everywhere, okay? And not only that, it is pretty much unanimously decided that this is the best, right, Curtis Mayfield record, right? As someone who has a number of um, really good records and a couple other great ones, uh, this one is... It, you know, there's there's not a lot of debate on which is the best Curtis Mayfield. You can have your favorite, but this is the best one. Um, and like you said, it's a it's black exploitation soundtrack, right? So it comes from a very particular movement in the early '70s um, about um, with um, films about um, black characters. Uh, and about in black cities, you know, or cities that are populated with a with a majority of black people, um, involving some of them drug dealers and pimps, and of course some of that um, was criticized for being you know stereotypical, uh, but at the same time, you know, it was exposing people you know to to black stories for the first time. It was allowing black audiences to see all black characters, you know, um, and have seeing black heroes. Um, black romantic stories, you know, like it, it, it offered actually something very unique to American cinema at the time that they just weren't getting, you know, um, I, you know, um, you know, maybe you have something like stormy weather from the early forties with the Nicholas brothers and then Oscar Michaud in the 1920s, like in the silent film you know, you just didn't see a, a lot of, you know, cinema with, all black casts telling black stories like unique about, you know, unique to the black experience. And these records did the same thing too, especially this one. This is a record about uh, the black experience in America um, and coming in a time where, you know, black popular music didn't quite do that. You know, they, they dipped their toes in there, but um, never going, you know, as, as far maybe as, it's especially in mainstream popular culture, um, as far as Chris Mayfield goes on, on this record. I'm thinking of songs like like Pusher Man, right? This is, you know, this is um, 
uh, an interesting, unique, and kind of a new kind of moment happening in, in pop music at the time. So it's a very exciting record. It's very exciting to listen to today. I mean, it, it holds up uh, this year, next month. It'll celebrate its 50th anniversary, and it hasn't aged today. Yeah, that's the thing I was thinking about so much this week listening to this album is that it feels just as vibrant. It feels just as meaningful. The the music sounds just as exciting today as it did the day that it came out. Um, And I don't think that'll change. And I think think more and more we're going to see people discover Curtis Mayfield. And then in this album in particular, we should go ahead and say this album was in 2019 selected by the library of congress for preservation in the national recording registry uh, on the most recent iteration of the rolling stone 500 greatest albums of all time it came in at number 76 it is also ranked among the greatest albums of all time on the enemy list the mojo list the spin list the you know, everyone who has a greatest albums of all time, this is an album that shows up among them. Yeah. Uh, going all the way back to, um, man, 2003, when VH1 named it the 63rd greatest album of all time. Interesting. That's also the original year for the Rolling Stone list, 2003. When it was, um, and it was 69 on that list. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, that's all right. I mean, like, yeah. Top 100 for sure. It's no mystery why we're talking about it today. Um, And and we're going to talk about it. We're not going to talk about it just the two of us. We have maybe the perfect guest to talk about this album in particular with. Micaiah, tell us about our guest today. Sure. Um, You forgot when listeners have heard him before on our Aretha Franklin episode. It is our pal Aaron Cohen. Um, who has written a book called Move On Up, right? Named after a Curtis Mayfield song from his, you know, record Curtis. Um, and it's a, a book that's dedicated to uh, the Chicago soul sound and uh, scene and um, celebrating, you know, thinking of the 50th anniversary of Superfly. Um, he's contributed liner notes um, to a new uh, pressing of the record that'll come out in August. So those pre-orders are available for everyone listening to go and try to get a copy of now. Uh, the They're live. Go do it. Um, Superfly is not really... I, I have an original copy myself, Rob. I think you do too. Um, but you don't see them around a lot. Um, and I don't know that a lot of reissues have been made of this record. So take advantage of the 50th anniversary edition coming out. Yeah, there was a reissue that came out four or five years ago, but it wasn't it wasn't a big reissue. And it, you know, if the record stores I go to are any indication, it sold through pretty quickly. Um, yeah, but- I don't see this in the stacks hardly at all. It's a new copy. It's not there. Um, Rhino recently they they repressed Roots, and uh, there's no place like America today. Uh, but Superfly, I think maybe, I guess it's been, just been out of print for a while um, until, you know, yeah. this new reissue, which is great. Well, and, and you told me as we were, as we were getting ready to interview, as we were getting ready to interview Aaron, Aaron sent me an email and just said, hey, just want to let you know I'm also contributing the, uh, I've also contributed the liner notes to the 50th anniversary pressing. And he sent us the link to, to pre-order it and, I don't know that I've, I don't know that I've ever spent $35 faster. (laughs) 
So, uh, and, and by the way, worth it, if for no other reason, then not only do you get the original nine track album with all the special edition liner notes and it's a gold pressing, um, it'll be, a, you know, a, a gold uh, album for the original nine track album. You also get an entire second LP worth of studio B-sides and other songs that were originally recorded to be part of the soundtrack and weren't. And so there's some really great stuff on there and some stuff by Curtis Mayfield I've never heard before. So uh, August, late August is when all of this is shipping out and I can't wait to get my hands on that album. Same. But all that being said, he's here with us today and we're going to be right back with him. We're going to take a quick break and let you hear from our independent record store of the week in Chicago, Illinois, and our sponsor anchor and then we will be back with our guest aaron cohen our independent record store of the week is chicago's own dave's records dave's records is one of our favorite shops in America. It is a crate digger's dream come true. Dave's Records is located at 2604 North Clark Street, Chicago, Illinois, 60614. You can find them online at davesrecordschicago.com. You can find them on Instagram at Dave's Records, on Twitter at Dave's Records Chicago. They are open Monday through Saturday, 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. and Sundays noon to 7 p.m. And you can reach them by phone at 773-929-6325. This is the second time, Aaron, that we've had you on the podcast, the the second time in one season, much less. Um, We talked with you about Aretha Franklin, and of course, you were the author of an incredible book about uh, not just Curtis Mayfield, but the Chicago soul music scene and what that means um, for the culture of Chicago in general. Um, So for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about your book before we get started talking about Curtis Mayfield. Yes. Well, my book is titled move on up Chicago soul music and black cultural power. And it came out in the fall of 2019 and it looks at the social and cultural changes that were going on in Chicago, primarily in African-American Chicago from the late 1950s into the early 1980s and how those changes, social, cultural, educational, artistic, um, you know, shaped the music here in Chicago 
uh, what made the music, particularly soul music in Chicago, so distinctive and how the musicians themselves, including Curtis Mayfield, became uh, change agents themselves, um, whether it's culturally or politically or socially. And um, so the book looks at all of these things. And, um, you know, Curtis Mayfield runs throughout the book, but it's so much about the community here in Chicago, whether we're talking about Curtis Mayfield or the Dells or... Minnie Ripperton or Terry Collier or Jerry Butler or the Shy Lights and so on and so forth. Um, especially since one of the things I really wanted to point out in this book was um, how diverse uh, the music in Chicago has always been. Uh, soul music, the diversity within soul music included in that. Do you, do you consider the staple singers as part of that kind of Chicago soul tradition? I do. I mean, Greg Cott wrote a great book about the Staples Singers, um, so I did not go that much into depth uh, with them. And um, but they, you know, they recorded a lot of their great music was recorded down south. Uh, the music that came out on Stax Records, however, they also recorded for Curtis Mayfield's Curtom label here in Chicago in the 1970s. They recorded for VJ here in Chicago, so um, they were, and you know, being based here, uh, so they were, uh, you know, between Chicago and the South, um, you know, they were their own uh, entity, so to speak. I did speak with Mavis Staples, but, um, you know, pretty much anything that she has to say is in Greg Cott's book, so I did not include them so much in mine. (laughs) I I appreciate that. Well, I also want to let our listeners know we have brought you back to talk Curtis Mayfield and particularly Curtis Mayfield's Superfly. And you are you have already written the liner notes for the 50th anniversary of this album that will be coming out in late August. And I'm I'm so excited to get my hands. I've pre-ordered that album and I can't wait to get my hands on it and read your writing about <laughs> this album. And so for our listeners, if you haven't already, we want to encourage you to pick up the 50th anniversary copy of Curtis Mayfield Superfly as soon as it becomes available to you and you'll be able to read Aaron Cohen's writing there as well. But for our listeners, this is kind of a broad question, Aaron, who is Curtis Mayfield and what do our listeners need to know about his career leading up to this album? Well, I mean, along with this being the 50th anniversary of the Superfly album, Uh, This is also the 80th anniversary of Curtis Mayfield's birth. He was born in 1942, and he grew up in Chicago in the Cabrini-Green housing projects uh, on the north side and came to music really early. He was uh, autodidact, had his own unique way of tuning the guitar, and he came up through the gospel circuit. But again, at a very young age, started recording uh, R&B with his group, The Impressions. And he had a distinctive guitar sound, a distinctive way of writing melodies, a very distinctive lyrical message. A lot of it came from his reading of poets like uh, Paul Lawrence Dunbar and observing scenes around him. And he also worked with some incredible collaborators. And we'll talk about them you know, repeatedly, one of them being the arranger, uh, Johnny Pate. So he and his group, The Impressions, had songs that were about the civil rights movement, like People Get Ready and We're a Winner.
in um, 1970, Curtis Mayfield went solo. And he not only uh, established himself as a solo artist, as an artist, but also as a businessman. He ran Kurtom Records, uh, he ran his own publishing, uh, along with his early business manager, Eddie Thomas. By the time of Superfly, Eddie Thomas had left the company and he, Curtis Mayfield took on another business partner, uh, someone named uh, Marv Stewart, who also went by the name uh, Marv Hyman. Um, so he was also running his own business. He was uh, composing film soundtracks, Superfly being the most well-known, but there were so many others, Claudine and Sparkle. And, you know, so he was also producing other artists. He was a talent scout for other artists. A lot of artists who became known today, a lot of them came up because of through Curtis's intervention, like Donny Hathaway, the five stair steps, uh, another great Chicago group. Um, and then he moved to Atlanta. Um, well, he moved to Atlanta in the seventies, but he still had an operation in Chicago. And then uh, by the late seventies, Atlanta was his home and he kind of withdrew from music, um, you know, for a number of years, but then hip hop came about a lot of it based on his sampling, his music, um, you know, his message. He was always big in England, big in Europe. So he kept, you know, he would tour England and Europe occasionally um, throughout the years. Uh, quite tragically, in 1990, uh, an onstage uh, accident uh, when he was performing in Brooklyn, a lighting fixture uh, uh, fell on him and left him uh, paralyzed from the neck down. Um, and then he made one last record, A New World Order, and um, died uh, at the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st century, kind of, you know, the passing of an era when uh, Curtis Mayfield um, left us. Mm -hmm. So that's his story in a nutshell, but certainly, you know, a, a big influence on artists, especially rhythm and blues artists, soul artists who wanted to go their own way, put forth their own voice, um, you know, put forth their own message. You know, him as a singer, songwriter, guitarist, band leader, entrepreneur was doing it himself everybody gather around and listen to my song i've only got one we who are young should now take a stand don't run from the burdens of women and men continue to give Continue to live for what you know is right. Most of your life can be out of sight. Withdraw from the darkness and look to the light. For everyone's free, at least that's the way it's supposed to be. We just keep on keeping. You know, he has an incredible debut album with Curtis in 1971. Um, I'm sorry, in 1970. Um, Roots in 19, 
71 and this album comes out in 1972 uh, there's there's a whole lot in terms of these kind of major label uh, albums but they're really there's a whole lot of work that he's doing even before these albums come out can you tell us a little bit about kind of his history leading up to the release of these three albums Sure. By the way, there was one uh, crucial album that you did not mention, which was Curtis Live. Uh, Curtis Live, out, yeah. Uh, before Superfly. And um, I'm going to actually talk about that one to get into what he was doing before. But that was when he led his group, the uh, Curtis Mayfield Experience, they were called, at a live session, uh, live, well, a concert that was recorded. And just a brilliant example of um, you know him uh, taking it to the stage, as it were, and engaging with an audience and stretching out, as it were. And that was another thing that was part of what he was doing at this time period, was stretching out as a musician, stretching out as a songwriter, stretching out as a persona. Um, another thing, too, about these years, and I, even though I've just been going on for, I think, the last 10 minutes about all the things that Curtis did on his own, um, he also has some incredible, awesome collaborators uh, as well. Um, I mentioned Eddie Thomas, his first uh, manager and business partner, who really um, you know, showed him a lot of things in terms of being an entrepreneur, in terms of um, what to do to be a successful business person, you know, in, in music in this country. Uh, another person who um, worked with him with the impressions and then on Superfly was uh, the wonderful arranger, Johnny Pate. And um, Johnny Pate had been a jazz bassist here in Chicago. And he just knew so much about orchestration. He knew so much about composing. He was also a composer as well, a great composer. Actually, he still is. He's 98. He's still composing uh, to this day. Um, but he's not performing because he's, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, great, you know, great composer, great arranger, great orchestrator. Um, and, you know, someone like Curtis Mayfield who had this very, um, distinctive individual sound on the guitar, uh, someone like Johnny Pate could hear that and hear how to apply that to strings, how to apply that to a bigger orchestral sound and to make it really groove too. I mean, Johnny Pate was also as much a groove master as he was a sophisticated, very, you know, uh, erudite arranger as well. So um, Curtis wasn't just working on his own. And then his first solo album, actually, uh, Riley Hampton uh, did the arrangements for that one. And Riley Hampton, also a great arranger, also someone from a jazz background here in Chicago. So Curtis Mayfield was also drawing on other people, you know, in this community here in Chicago and, you know, in other cities, too, to help make his music be to sound like it, it did, to make his music sound as full, to make it sound as rich, to make it sound as, you know, sophisticated was because he knew, you know, how to work with others. Like, and then also percussionist, Master Henry Gibson, who has uh, a very distinct, who came up through the sort of um, Afrocentric um, Afro arts theater, which I talk about in my book. And I talk about what that meant in terms of, you know, a sort of a consciousness for uh, African Caribbean culture including music and master henry gibson's percussion playing was came out of that and he was also a part of the curtis mayfield experience the curtis mayfield sound um so you know mayfield is drawing on these other people to help him you know create this body of music at this time period in the early 70s as he's going solo but of course even when he was with the impressions 
uh, you know, the other uh, two singers in the impressions, Fred Cash, Sam Good, and just great voices too. So he was always working with key collaborators as well. It was a community effort. Superfly might be might be the best or among the very best soundtracks of all time. But it is also unique in that it is a soundtrack to a a genre of movie that we regularly refer to as a black exploitation film. And so I want to ask this question, what is a black exploitation film? Why why do we give them that kind of uh, specific title? And especially in the 70s why were the soundtracks to these movies so important because as phenomenal as superfly is it is not the only really great soundtrack to a black exploitation film there there are others you know we we think of uh, shaft for example or or uh, sweet sweet backs i mean there there are some other great black exploitation soundtracks but let's start with here with this question what are black exploitation films and what what kind of sets these movies apart in particular the soundtracks to these movies well it's a really interesting question and i think a lot of people nowadays um they they don't really like the term black exploitation and i can understand why because there are so many different films that fall under that name. Um, you know, even the films, if we were just to take like the, the, the films that are un- considered black exploitation, even just the ones that Curtis Mayfield was involved with, even those are really diverse and there's a really interesting range. Um, you know, you see a film like Superfly, which is about a drug dealer who has to take on, you know, corrupt cops, gangsters and everything. So this urban, you know, drama and there's gunshots and there's fighting and there's all that stuff that people identify with, you know, an exploitation film. You compare that to a film like Claudine, which Curtis Mayfield also did. And that's a domestic drama. And it also you know, it takes place in New York City. But that's really the only thing that the two films have in common. I mean, that's about, you know, a young woman uh, trying to raise her family as a single mom, you know, and she you know hooks up with, um, you know, a garbage man played by James Earl Jones. And they try to, you know, see if they can make it as a family in this, you know, environment. So, you know, that's a domestic story. And, you know, there's not that much similarity in terms of, um, you know, content in terms of what happens in the film. And those are just films I just chose because Curtis Mayfield was involved. So the whole scope of what is considered black exploitation is so diverse. And there were so many of these films that were made and, you know, some, you know, were about crime and some were about families and some were about history. Some were about historical figures. Some were about, you know, everyday life. Some were, science fiction uh, sunra did one of those and so um it's a quite quite a large range now with that in mind um i think what one could say is part of what makes um that era 
linked together, I guess, under one umbrella that has been called black exploitation is that there are, you know, after the 1960s and with the people in Hollywood realizing that, you know, we need what's now called diversity, equity and inclusion. So there were more opportunities for African-American actors, screenwriters, more opportunities for African-American musicians to do scores. And there were more opportunities for producers, more opportunities for them to tell their stories um, because these songs were making money too. I mean, Hollywood is a business. They weren't doing it to be, you know, kind, but when, you know, someone like Melvin Van Peebles can make sweet, sweet backs, a bad, badass song, funding it himself, you know, through other means and then, you know, putting it out there and it's making gazillions of dollars, you know, Hollywood realizes that. So they're not just doing it to be kind. Um, same with Superfly. I mean, Superfly was funded through various means. It didn't cost, you know, a whole lot to produce, but it made a ton of money. And um, so I think that that's sort of, I think what people think of is that sort of era and what the value of that era is, was this, influx of new new voices too as well as older voices um uh in terms of you know who was making the films and then like some of the films had white directors some had white producers some had black directors some had black producers so again it's very mixed it's a very much a you know a tangled and complex and complicated thing to just be you know, done yeah. with one broad brush called black exploitation yeah so that, 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 I mean, I, I mean, I think that's that's worth us saying, and, and I think probably yeah. worth repeating is that it, it is it is sim, it is oversimplifying, and and it is it is probably an unfair reduction um, to to refer to 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 some of these films that way. Makai, I'd, I'd love for you to kind of I know you have some strong thoughts, especially some of your uh, master's work was was done around this idea of kind of black exploitation and, and all of the cultural things that come in here. So I'd, I'd love really for Micaiah, for you and Aaron to, to talk through uh, some of these ideas, particularly in terms of what do we call a black exploitation film? And, and, and again, Aaron, to your point, how do we maybe get away? What is some better language maybe that we can put around some of these films? Ooh. All right. Uh, I mean, one thing we also have to know is that, you know, black exploitation is part of a larger trend, you know, that you can think of as being kind of adjacent to like grindhouse movies, you know, what you would call exploitation films or sexploitation films that might be seen at the same theater where you would go see like women's prison movies or something, you know, so they're, they're B pictures, you know, the, by nature, um, except with the black exploitation films, um, there's something more interesting happening. Um, and that is that you're getting a cast of all black people in a motion picture, uh, which maybe you haven't seen since stormy weather in the early 1940s or something, you know, with the Nicholas brothers, you know, you're not seeing a lot of all black cast telling a story about the black experience in America, you know, so NAACP and SCLC, they have some issues um, with these movies. Sure. Um, just because, you know, it, it did depict things like like drug dealers and and violence, uh, particularly in urban areas. Um, but at the same time, it's it's opening up viewers to see something that was radically different from, you know, what their lives have been. Um, the harder uh, the harder they come. Right. Yeah. The yeah. with the Jimmy Cliff. Jimmy Cliff. 
another not not quite black exploitation mostly because it's made in a different country radically changes culture a white culture even right it becomes very important to the punk rock sure. movement you know um and black exploitation again like again what do you what do you call it because it's not just you know it could be westerns right what uh the the legend of n-word charlie right like that that's another big kind of uh black exploitation film of the time but we also haven't talked about pam greer sid haig i mean black exploitation is creating black movie stars who aren't Sidney Poitier, you know, the, the black man in a pretty much an all white cast, even though he gets to slap a white man, which, you know, we all love and RIP Sidney Poitier who passed away only very recently. There was something um, empowering about seeing an all black cast, you know, and especially like a, a strong black woman like Pam Greer and things like coffee and, and, and Foxy Brown. Um, But another element of these films that we haven't really talked about is the idea of the anti-hero. And that's something that was popular in the seventies in general. That's something that black exploitation had in common with the French connection Um, and the taxi driver, you know, these, these things that Scorsese and Friedkin and, and Coppola were doing, you know, so it's, it, it, it fit in really nicely with the mainstream and that's kind of how it, probably potentially how it became very popular, not just with black audiences, but with white audiences as well. And I think what's important about the soundtracks, right, is that this might be one way that white audiences are seeing the black experience for the first time, but also hearing things about the black experience for the first time. You know, the music is not Motown, you know, it's not my girl, right? It's, it's pusher man, you know, so it it's, it's the anti-hero. It's the, the that kind of moral ambiguity. It's not the clean cut. You know, it, it is exposing people to a larger thing, and that you it, you're right to criticize it for you know perpetuating stereotypes. You know, like that that can that has been said and that's been well argued by people. But at the same time, it is exposing people to um, some realities about the black experience in America, and allowing these soundtracks to happen that will allow pop music to go down those avenues um, in ways that we'll experience again in hip hop as early as like things like the message um, to the music of, of Nas and even like Kendrick Lamar today, you know, who Kendrick Lamar sampling like the payback right, by James Brown, you know, like the exploitation is very important um, to kind of how we understand um, black popular culture in like the second half of the 20th century.
Let's talk about the soundtracks, and if sure. you haven't already, let's talk about the soundtracks to these movies and uh-huh. why they, they were so often, uh, I mean, really, they became not just great soundtracks, but soundtracks in many ways that were leading the way or, or maybe bringing national or, or kind of broader audience to soul and funk music that was happening at the time. Well, I think one of the things that's really important is that you had these, you know, great artists, whether it's Curtis Mayfield, Bobby Womack, Marvin Gaye, who um, Melvin, um, Maurice White with Melvin Van Peebles, and they have a broader canvas. They have bigger budgets to really fulfill their artistic visions in ways that they were not able to with record company budgets. Um, You know, so they had you know, they're doing this for a film. They have more money to work with more orchestrations and they have, you know, they can actually tell stories through their music because they'd wanted to earlier in the sixties. I mean, the great artists, uh, great R and B artists, they wanted to to act work on a bigger scale. They wanted to have a bigger canvas. They wanted to work with orchestras, many of them. And now they were provided opportunities to do so. And, uh, Isaac Hayes, another you know, great example. And so this really not only was it bringing the attention from different audiences to their music, but they could take their music in a different direction uh, because they had the ability to do so because they're working for film companies or working with film companies. And there's probably a part of that that like legitimizes right their art to have it under like a big studio name and to to get it to sound as grand as, you know, a film score. These soundtracks, you know, you go to see the movie and you're seeing something, especially if you're a white viewer, something that's very foreign to you, something that's very new. Um, And back then, right, there's no chance for it to go on streaming in 45 days or to come out on DVD or videotape. So the way to kind of capture that experience at home was to go and get the record and the record would have the album art and the poster maybe was the cover and the soundtrack the songs would of course like kind of narratively uh, remind you of scenes or even the instrumentals remind you of stuff you know so or if you have the sweet sweetback soundtrack right there there's dialogue from the movie all throughout that record
you know, so that's another way to to keep that experience that you're seeing on the big screen, right? Bring it into your home, right? Through the record. And I think that probably is the reason why these records, you know, sold so well. Also, I mean, um, you know, a lot of nudity, a lot of sexuality, um, which um, is important, you know, black romance, you know, that's, you weren't seeing that on screen unless you were watching a black exploitation film. Right. You know, black sexuality, I think it's, it's very important, especially for someone like Isaac Hayes. Um, and it, it is definitely, you know, on, on this record a little bit too. Um, but, you know, the, the, these are all things that have become very important and, and why they're appealing is so attractive, despite kind of the stuff that we look at now as, you know, being deeply problematic. And even then for, like I said, NAACP and SCLC, these more conservative civil rights organizations you know these you know NAACP being more top down and SCLC of course being the Southern Christian Leadership Conference right they both kind of had issues with these things but never yeah, no sexuality I mean the in the Superfly the uh, Give Me Your Love uh, sequence the uh, famous bathtub scene and mm-hmm. um, so um, you know certainly you know great example of that right there in Superfly for sure. I mean you got all these James Bond movies yeah give us a black James Bond you know that's the way, you know, these audiences are thinking. Right. And that's what these films provide. Whether it's Richard Roundtree or Ron O'Neill or whoever, yeah. Of course, without all, you know, take away all his gadgets and Union <laughs> Jacks and you put him- I was about to say, take away, the imperial, take away the imperialism. You know? Right, right. interesting thing that you talked about is the idea of larger budgets as well and it's strange to think that these artists i mean again curtis mayfield has done two he's done two studio albums and a live album by the time superfly comes out but even for an artist like curtis mayfield the idea that doing a soundtrack would provide some financial backing or, or at least some financial freedom to do what he wanted to do that may not be provided by a record label. And and Aaron, can you talk to us a little bit more about that? And and the idea that for some of these artists doing a soundtrack, it not only does it provide an audience, but it, it does, it provides some, some funding to do these, these albums that may not have been there in their own record labels. Yeah. And I think, well, I think with Curtis Mayfield though, he had more financial, um, wherewithal than other artists. I mean, as I mentioned, he had set up his own operation, his own studios, his own, you know, he had his own hit making, uh, capacity, so to speak. So he, but, you know, again, um, I think to work with the strings, uh, and he worked with strings obviously before Johnny Pate had worked with strings before, but, um, you know, to, to do so much, and so quickly too. I mean, this was recorded uh, so quickly, and having the wherewithal to do that. So I think Curtis was in a different uh, 
yeah. uh, category in terms of funding and getting funding and stuff. But, um, you know, I, I don't, you know, I don't think that Isaac Hayes was given, for instance, with Shaft, until Shaft, I don't think Isaac Hayes, uh, as important as he was to Stack's records, you know, I don't think he was able to work on that canvas uh, before yeah. like he was. Um, but, you know, of course, Isaac Hayes at Stacks had a different role that than Curtis had with, you know, his company with Kurt Tom. So, again, just like there were different uh, diverse things going on with the movies, there was also different things with the funding, too. But I know that for several artists, it did provide uh, more backing. So thinking about is, is also, is there a difference that we're seeing for Curtis Mayfield? Is there, I mean, obviously there's a narrative structure to the album Superfly that obviously isn't there in, in his studio albums, but is there something, is, is there a difference that you see, especially thinking of those first three, these first kind of three big Curtis Mayfield albums, is there something that sets Superfly apart musically that you're not seeing in Curtis or in Roots. Certainly, um, I think that is uh, comes down to this was his solo album with Johnny Pate. I mean, like I say, Johnny Pate he had worked with with the Impressions, um, but this whole balance between you know him and his group and what Johnny Pate was able to do with strings and how they were able to have this you know big musical conversation is something that. Uh, was, you know, for Curtis's Mayfield's solo work. I mean, Johnny Payne had uh, done a little bit earlier in his solo career, and of course, but nothing like this big collaboration at this point. And I think, too, this is one of the things that made Superfly, I think, stand out from other black exploitation soundtracks. Of course, again, going back to that term, black exploitation. But I think one of the things that made it stand out was that um, with Trouble Man, Shaft, Across 110th Street, um, Sweet Sweetback, you know, these were all collaborations that were there for that recording and that was it. Um, you know, they didn't really have a long-term relationship between artist and arranger and orchestrator. Superfly was the reunion with Curtis Mayfield and Johnny Pate. So you have that, you know, even though he's doing new music, new sound, working with a film for the first time. He's also working with someone who's really familiar with him and someone who has formed this, you know, who formed a bond with him in the earlier decades. So it's new music, but with a longstanding associate, someone who had been very important to him. I, I want to make it personal for you, if I can, Aaron. This album, Superfly, what was your first... What was your first experience with this album? What was your first impression of this album? What were the ways for you personally that this album hits you the first time you heard it? Um, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I have to go way back to my childhood here. I feel like I should be on a couch, you know, uh, lying down as you're there with your notepad and everything. Um, so I would have... Tell us, Aaron, what was it like <laughs> when you first heard this record? Well, it would have been, um, you know, when I was a young man. And um, it would have been hearing uh, tracks, you know, the, the more well-known tracks, whether it was Freddie's Dead or... Little Child Running Wild and, you know, the funkiness and, um, you know, being caught up in that. Um, 
And then, of course, you know, it was one of the records I had with me through college and um, that whole high school college experience of growing up and just getting into it as an album. And I think, well, obviously I would, you know, I don't know why, but it took me a while to actually see the film. I mean, I had the soundtrack for a lot longer before I saw the film. I don't know why, Um, you know, I, I could have rented the VHS back in the eighties. But for some reason it was more immersive in the funkier stuff. And it wasn't until I was older, actually, Um, here we are getting into the psychology of me. Um, It wasn't until I was older that I got to more appreciate the subtleties that were going on. Um, Again, the strings, how he worked with strings, how Curtis Mayfield was sort of in a conversation with the string section, what this tension of the string section was doing. Um, mm, yeah. You know, um, you know, when I was a younger man, it was all about the funkiness. You know, it was all about that guitar sound. It was all about the way it's like thinking, wow, that guy can sing really high. And it's really a really great contrast to that real deep, hard groove. And isn't that cool? Um, you know, again, that was my younger self thinking. Um, but it wasn't until I was older that I realized all these other things that were going on as well. Curtis Mayfield in conversation with the strings, the kind of more funk elements almost in counter to Pate's strings. There, there really is something there that again, and and I, I like the way you put it, that it does, it takes, it takes maybe more maturity. It takes, uh, a willingness to really spend some time. But I think as you begin to see those things in this album, it, it only serves to make it that much richer. And, and again, it's something, you know, it, maybe it's, it's not even recognizing, maybe it's beginning to the thing that you're always seeing, the thing that you're always hearing, the, the, these things that are always present there, but as you begin to notice them, the, the subconscious things that begin to come to the surface of this album, uh, it absolutely is is true, and I, I love the way you put that. Is there is there maybe some some particular places on this album where you feel like you see those um, kind of that playfulness between those two elements really stand out? Um, I don't know if I'd say playfulness because it's such a serious theme, but um, "Little Child Running Wild," as I had mentioned earlier, um, 
you know, Eddie, you should know, uh, Eddie, you should know better is another example. Um, and, um, you know, even, um, you know, something like, uh, a pusher man, uh, not you know, a pusher man and no thing on me. I'm sorry. nothing on me would be another one. So, uh, you know, these are all serious themes. Um, also let me add too, um, and this was a source of contention after the album came out between, um, Johnny Payton and Curtis Mayfield's camp was that, you know, there were a couple of instru- short instrumental tracks, um, uh, think and uh, junkie chase, which, um, Johnny Pate should have received at least co-writing, co-composing credit on, um, mm. and he did not. And he was upset about that for a long time. And um, by the time, you know, I got to know Johnny Pate, he had, you know, it was sort of like water under the bridge. It had been decades ago, you know, and he had gone and you know lived a very wonderful life um, since then. Um, so Johnny Pate let that go. But for a while, there was some real... Uh, he was very upset about that, and I can understand his, his point, you know. a little bit about the the recording process and, and how these these songs were written and how and how these songs were recorded as as this album came together and and again you know for for our listeners we we really want to encourage you to pick up this 50th anniversary uh album because you're going to be able to read a lot of this in the liner notes. But um, for our listeners, can you give us a little preview maybe? Of sure. Something? I know that you've already written about this. You know, you, you, you wrote about this a while ago um, that our listeners are finally going to be able to read when the 50th anniversary of this album comes out. But tell us a little bit about the recording process and how this album came together. Sure. Well, you know, along with uh, speaking with uh, Johnny Pate, um, I also spoke uh, with Craig McMullen and Craig McMullen was, you know, the other guitarist on the album, um, you know, other than Curtis, although uh, Phil Upchurch did a little few little things, but uh, Craig McMullen was doing that sort of wah-wah sound. So, um, you know, you hear those really interesting leads uh, that Curtis was doing. And then there's that wah-wah. Well, you know, the wah-wah was uh, Craig McMullen and uh, he lives in Columbus, Ohio. And um, so I spoke with the two of them. And, um, so, you know, to make a long story short, um, you know, Curtis Mayfield, uh, and his group, he was approached, uh, by the filmmakers, uh, they were planning this film, uh, and Curtis Mayfield's performing in New York. They were going to film it in New York and they wanted, uh, Curtis Mayfield to do the music. They had a script that was like, I think like 45 pages. It was a little rinky dink script and, you know, gave Curtis Mayfield the, uh, script to look at. And, um, he would, uh, come to the set and, um, you know, with his songs and play them as they were filming. Um, one song, uh, Pusher Man is used in the, in the film and, um, the drummer, uh, Tyrone McCullen, 
plays on that. And then for the rest of the album, uh, Morris Jennings uh, plays drums on it. Um, I asked uh, Craig McMullen why uh, Tyrone was only on that one track. He, he didn't remember. But anyway, so um, they recorded the bulk of it um, here in Chicago and in New York. And it was done very short amount of time, just a few days. And they were all crammed into the studio here with the strings and the string section. And they were just looking at each other as they were recording. Um, the, the, the story goes that, you know, Curtis Mayfield was making up the songs as filming went along. Um, now, uh, is that true? Well, um, you know, it's, I, I think it's quite possible that he had ideas stored for a while. I mean, he was always writing, he was always composing. So um, whether or not he was composing the songs for Superfly, spontaneously or if these were taken from ideas that he might have had percolating uh in a while does not make the album any less great and you know just like it doesn't make his own work any less great because um you know johnny page should have been credited for two instrumental tracks um so um you know it was this very quick uh process but done on a very large scale in a cramped studio at times here. And I should say that the studio where the bulk of the album was recorded was at RCA Studios here in Chicago. And, oh, it wasn't um, at Curtis's studio? No, it was not oh, at Kurtom. Okay. Um, so um, in Kurtom, which is actually not too far from where I live, but no, this was RCA Studios. Um, and um, although some of it was recorded at Bell Sound in, in New York, um, but most of it was here. And, um, you know, when I was talking to, um, you know, Craig McMullen about that, he said that they had to, um, set up the microphones in a way that wasn't getting radio interference and feedback and stuff. So that was another thing they had to do with, um, had to deal with, and they had to deal with it really quickly. Um, you know, their strings were, you know, they were, there would be overdubs as well. And, uh, you know, vocal tracks done separately as well and retakes and stuff. But, um, you know, they had a very, you know, limited amount of time uh, to do it. So they were looking at each other and looking at each other. And again, uh, mostly uh, Curtis's working band, so they had that familiarity with each other. Um, I mean, and then well, they brought in Morris Jennings, who was a studio pro uh, here in Chicago, and they knew him through his many sessions here. So, um, you know, just being able to see each other, visualize what they were doing, and um, being able to follow each other's lead in this really, you know, cramped space at that time. I don't remember the exact dimensions of the room, but, um, you know, you had, um, you know, and also I want to give credit to Saul Bobrov, who was the um, string uh, coordinator. So we had to get the guys from the CS Chicago Symphony to come down and, you know, do this uh, soundtrack, their violins and violas and such, and um, follow uh, Johnny Pate's score, his orchestrations, and, um, you know, allow space for uh, Curtis Mayfield and his group to do their thing as well. Breathing in the air 
when it comes to you know black icons of the 70s is kind of Marvin and Stevie for yeah. you know a lot of kind of just you know basic level like music fans and we lose kind of like the Curtis Mayfield in the narrative of like and, and many many more um, but yeah Curtis somehow gets gets lost in that and I don't know where that comes from um, and yeah I don't know. Aaron, well, Aaron, do you have any thoughts about that on why Curtis Mayfield isn't kind of grouped in there with the way we think of Stevie and the way we think sure. of Marvin? Um, by the way, speaking, I was once talking to a Jamaican singer named Pat Kelly, and uh, we we he det- he told me that if, if Curtis Mayfield had run for prime minister of Jamaica, he would have won easily. Oh, yeah. um, wow. Um, but as far as like, you know, I think now, I think nowadays we're seeing more we meaning everybody seeing more uh, credit and homage paid to Curtis Mayfield. I think there's more respect for him than uh, there had been uh, years ago, um, especially here in Chicago. Uh, I think one of the reasons that I had such uh, inspiration to do the research and writing that I've been doing was because I thought there needed to be a lot more respect given to Curtis Mayfield, mm-hmm. um, you know, especially here in his hometown. Um, that's changed a lot in the last few years. I think there's a lot more, you know, I think it's only a matter of time until we see him on a stamp. You know, I think that th- that day is coming, you know, uh, yeah. it should have came a long time ago, but I think that day is coming. Um, but as far as like um, why, you know, he hadn't been as much of a, you know, an icon as much as Stevie and Marvin Gaye, uh, he didn't perform as often as those guys. I mean, those guys were, were touring a lot. Curtis Mayfield was more withdrawn. I mean, he did perform, obviously he did tour, um, but he was, he was more withdrawn. He was, he, he was kind of like oftentimes more behind the scenes. He took a lot of time off from touring, from playing, from performing. Um, you know, there's that personality. Um you know, he certainly has, I think, a lot of charisma. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think, you know, watching the clips that do exist of him, he does have a lot of charisma. Um, but, you know, I mean, someone like Marvin Gaye, I mean, talk about, you know, on stage, uh, you know, uh, looking at him on stage. Um, and then, you know, Stevie Wonder just creating and creating and creating, um, you know, time and time again, album after album and coming up with things, you know, that were just so incredible and also still performing, you know, time and time again. And, um, you know, um, so there was just performing that much. And then of course, you know, again, in the eighties, uh, with the rise of people like, you know, Prince and, you know, Michael Jackson, um, but Prince especially was just taking things in this sort of different direction. I mean, obviously if there was no Curtis Mayfield, there'd be no Prince, but um, you know, he was just, his music was his own and he was doing something that was off to the side. And then, um, you know, and there was also that uh, horrible, um, you know, paralyzing, uh, you know, thing that happened to Curtis Mayfield in 1990. So he was not able to perform. Uh, as his work is being sampled, you know, all over the place in hip hop. And, you know, I, I haven't gone today to um, that website, whosample.com, that has like a list of how many times people are sampled. So I don't know as of today how many times he's been sampled, but I'm sure it's in the, you know, gazillions. Um, but he wasn't able to take advantage of, you know, that adulation among the hip hop communities. Um, he wasn't able to go out there and do things in the nineties as hip hop was becoming such a big thing. You know, a lot of it from, you know, what he was doing with Superfly. I mean, that pretty much led the way to um, hip hop for so many different reasons. And he wasn't able to take advantage of that, you know, because of the condition he was in, because of that horrible, um, you know, freak accident in, in Brooklyn. 
Let's let's talk at least a little bit about our favorite songs from Superfly and in in what makes those songs great. Um, just because I, especially as I think about what my five would be from this album, like they they really they hold up over time, and I, I still am amazed by just the quality of these songs. You know, I mean, for me, you know, obviously, you know, um, even though it was the hit, you know, Freddie's Dead. I mean, that was the one that I first heard. And of course, the, you know, the funk and the combination of the funk and the hard drive with the strings and everything, you know, the way Little Child Run Wild comes in, you know, and the way it sort of sets the scene and the way you sort of, you know, even though as I mentioned earlier, I heard the record, you know, years before I saw the film, but just the way it brought me into that narrative, um, you know, um, so there's those two, um, you know, give me your love. Got to have a ballad on there in my top five, just to make things, you know, balance, I, I guess, if I'm have to choose uh, five, um, you know, we were talking about, uh, you know, nothing on me and, um, you know, the optimism, I think that's a part of that song. Um, you know, um, I'm actually going to include a Johnny Pate, think instrumental, uh, just because I want to give him credit where it's due. Um, so I think is that five or did I miscount? Um, yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah. I'll go next. Um, yeah. Little child run, uh, is great. I mean, the strings like thinking of it in terms of cinema, right. The intro to the song is almost like an overture to get you into the album like mm-hmm. like Aaron, like you're talking about like setting the scene like it it sets you up for the rest of the record and yeah it rules i don't i mean what, what, what can i say listen to the track it's all there uh pusher man mm-hmm. uh, a great character song right uh, from from a character's perspective um which makes it kind of a unique track on the record uh and just great and really cool and you can definitely tell that it's going to have influence on hip-hop Right. You can, you can tell this there, you know, the way that um, rappers will use like this kind of character, right. In their own kind of personas on, on a record or something. It, uh, it at least that's how it, how it seems to me. Uh, Freddie's dead. Of course. This, I mean, again, we only have so many to choose from. Yeah. Um, no thing on me. The parentheses cocaine song for, you know, everything Aaron said, I'm just going to pick it up. And, um, Superfly, which um, is the one on the album that, you know, it's a hop, skip and a jump away from, from James Brown, you mm-hmm. know, you know, it's um, yeah. Just got those great. I mean, it was, it's got those horns. Yeah. You know, that's, you know, which makes it sound more like a, like a James Brown kind of thing. Uh, but it's great. Maybe, maybe that's lame to have the title track on there, oh, but no, no. it will not be denied. It's no, it's, no. You, you like what you great. like. Yeah. 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 But I'm, I'm with you. Like it does. It, it, it like, it it feels like it could be a B side to uh to any of the singles that came on uh that came on the payback for sure. So my, mine, oh, yeah, I mean they're also I, I just love this <laughs> album. Like I, I 
I love this album. Um, I'm going to go, um, so I'm going to stick with my original list. I'm going to go uh, Pusher Man, Freddy's Dead. And, and again, Freddy's Dead, Aaron, probably like you, Freddy's Dead was my intro to this album. This is going to be a complete, you know, uh, exit ramp here. But I, I've recently started going to baseball games um, with, with my family. And I love that baseball players get to pick their walk-up music. So, like, when they're getting ready to go up to bat, they, like, get to play, like, 10 seconds of the song. And uh, clearly, I'm I'm not – there's – you know, I'm 41, and there's no chance of me ever becoming a professional athlete. Not that there ever was before either, but, like, it's, it's not ever going to happen. But I, I love to play the game. Like, if I was a professional baseball player, what would my walk-up music be? And it would absolutely be just that opening of Freddy's Dead. Just uh-huh. – like, cause you can't help like you, like yeah. that's, that's a strut song. <laughs> like you just, uh, you know, like, which is, I mean, which is interesting because I mean, the lyrics are certainly so despondent. I mean, I know. you know, it's certainly, you know, it's, it's a strut song as you mentioned, but then the words just totally contradict that, mm-hmm. um, you mm-hmm. know, completely. I mean, that's, which is incredible. I mean, and it works. I mean, the fact that that contrast, you know, Absolutely. between that, the strut song, as you mentioned, if you're going to yeah. go up to bat, literally or figuratively symbolically whatever and then what he's actually talking about as the title indicates um Mm -hmm. you know um and then you see the film and you know freddie's death is really pathetic it's not even glorious in any or any or tragic it's pathetic and Mm -hmm. you know but then you know the song is just such a monster funk jam it's it's fascinating it's it's a great like cautionary tale that's not like so like heavily like didactic or something you know mm-hmm. yeah and that's the mm-hmm. delicate balance in a hard line to walk on you know and and he does it with with great ease i mean this yeah. is was this is what makes him a great songwriter Absolutely. it could just be like totally oh you know just too on the nose overly didactic or something but it's not it's just perfect, you know dialed exactly right yeah so pushman freddie's dead um the song that has grown on me the most in the last 25 years of listening to this album, give me your love. This it's, it's just a, I mean, it's an infectious song, like great little ballad sticks in your head. I mean, it's got some great handles to it. Um, Nothing on me, which again, I, I think is another song that just written brilliantly is, is kind of pulling from a lot of places. And then the title track, Superfly, again, it, it could be any, you could pick any of any five of the nine on this album and it would be the right answer. Um, it's just that good. I've met many people over the years. And in my opinion, I have found that people are the same everywhere. Have the same fears, shed similar tears, die in so many years. The oppressed seems to have suffered the most in every continent, coast to coast. Now our lives are in the hands of the pusher man. We break it all down in hopes that you might understand how to protect yourself. Don't make no profit for the man. I'm so glad I've got my own. So glad. My life's a natural hat The man can't put no thing on me I'm so glad I've got my own So glad that I can see My life's a natural hat The man can't put no thing on me You're something kind of 
so Curtis Mayfield again. This is this is the album that we have chosen for our list, but we are huge fans of Curtis Mayfield, and um, we we have gone back and forth. Makai and I have about our favorite five Curtis Mayfield albums. Is that something that you think you you have off the top of your head, Aaron? That you could give us your five favorite Curtis Mayfield albums? Sure. I mean, there's Superfly, which we've just been talking about. Uh, Curtis Live, that phenomenal live album. Um, his first uh, solo album, uh, Curtis. Uh, Roots uh, as well. And um, uh, No Place Like America Today, which um, didn't get enough attention when it came out. So, um, you know, got to, you know, I think that one also is a real, you know, serious with a lot of songs. Actually, that song has a a song about gun control. So talk about, you know, something that's very, very relevant today. Um, you know, Curtis Mayfield is writing about gun control in the mid 1970s. So there's no place like America today. I would put in my, I think that's five. Is that five? Yeah. So those yeah. are my spontaneous uh, five. Um, yeah. Yeah. We, we have almost the, we have almost the same five, not, not in the same order, but we have, we have almost the, almost the same five. Mine are uh, it's a super fly Curtis, Roots, There's No Place Like America Today, and Back to the World. Oh, yeah, Back to the World is another great one, sure. Yeah, I hadn't thought to include the live album, so I only did studio albums as well, but I'll, I'll say Curtis Live is my sixth man. Um, but from the bottom up, five, uh, New World Order, hmm. which is a tough revisit. Um, Why is that? Uh, his last record. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, it was, it's... it's um, it's emotionally taxing. Um, it is. It is. I, I, my uncle was paraplegic, you know, so it's just like, it's something that, uh, you know, it really uh, hits an emotional spot for me. There's so many, there's so many great, beautiful moments uh, on that record. Mavis Staples, we've talked about uh, some great moments on that record. Um, but it's, yeah, it, it's not one I can revisit often, um, but it's, I, it's, it's a beautiful record and a, and a really great final record um, from, you know, one, one of the great, you know, artists. Um, my four then is, uh, there's no place like America today. Um, some of my favorite Chris Mayfield songs on that record. Mm-hmm. Three for me is Curtis. Maybe that's controversial. Which um, one? Uh, the, the first solo record. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. That's my third. Uh, number two for me is Superfly, And number one is roots. Uh, I can't get enough of that. Of that record, and it's uh, it's just seven perfect songs to me. Well, Aaron, I, I want to thank you so much for for being with well, thank us. Thank you for having me. Really, um, you know, anytime I talk with you guys about anything, you know, especially music, it's great. I want to I want to close with this. You know, we we always close an interview by asking for your five albums, and you were so gracious to do that with us the last time that you were on. But one of the things that I've been thinking about, especially. Um, again, your book, Move On Up, we want to encourage all of our listeners to pick that up. You can pick that up wherever books are sold, and we encourage you especially to pick that up from your local independent book retailer. But one of the things you do in Move On Up is talk about how the Chicago soul, Chicago music scene is more than just Curtis Mayfield. Curtis Mayfield is a huge part of it, but it's more than just Curtis Mayfield. And Again, one of the things that I love to see happening now for Curtis Mayfield that, that again, we, we've already alluded to, but Curtis Mayfield is 
is just now in the last maybe decade or so really starting to get some some long overdue recognition and appreciation for his career. And my hope would be that as people are maybe discovering or rediscovering Curtis Mayfield, that they also might be led into kind of the history of some other great Chicago soul artists. So I wanted to ask you this question, especially in light of your book, Move On Up. For your five albums, can I ask you for your five essential albums of Chicago soul music? Well, since we just spent uh, an hour and a half talking about Superfly, I'll put that on the list. Okay. <laughs> but I could have actually, or either that or Curtis Mayfield's uh, Curtis album, one of the two. Um, but, you know, Superfly has the edge tonight because we just spent, you know, an <laughs> hour and a half. So along with that, uh, Sil Johnson is Because I'm Black, um, crucial concept album. Um, about and really the first concept album in R&B and, you know, dealing where Syl Johnson is, you know, asking that question um, about and looking at the state of black America, looking at the state of the way, um, you know, white and black Americans look at each other. Um, incredible group, um, incredible songwriting, um, incredible, you know, guitar parts. It's just a really just amazing album. And it's also very stripped down too. Um, you know, we talk about all these great arrangements with um, Curtis Mayfield, what he was doing. And this one takes um, the opposite approach. I mean, this is just like, you know, his band or the pieces of peace and, um, you know, a couple other sort of some horn arrangements and stuff, but very little. It's certainly not the so-called Chicago sound of Curtis Mayfield in a lot of ways. It's very different. Um, the Shy Lights, uh, for God's sake, give more power to the people. Um, Eugene Record from The Shy Lights, just another great singer, another great songwriter. Um, you know, one of the other great, you know, musical minds that Chicago produced. Um, of course, you know, that's the whole title track and, um, you know, The Shy Lights, just incredible harmonies. Um, you know, so definitely have to have at least one vocal group on a list of top five Chicago albums. So I'm choosing that one. Uh, Terry Collier, uh, What Color is Love? And uh, Terry Collier, like uh, Curtis Mayfield, grew up in Cabrini Green, but he went in a very different direction. Uh, he went in a direction that was more oriented toward um, folk music, jazz, um, improvising his own way of doing a sort of folk jazz soul um, combination. But he was also a great R&B songwriter. He and his uh, partner, Larry, Larry Wade, wrote uh, The Love We Had Stays On My Mind, which was a hit for the Dells. Um, and so What Color Is Love was a very individualistic statement by Terry Collier. And I think that um, only he could make. And again, someone else who should have been better known, but he was also very withdrawn. He wanted to just, you know, raise a daughter as a single dad. Um, loved in England, uh, loved over there in England. Um, and then, um, you know, again, trying to keep it down to five, but um, I'm going to put uh, Minnie Ripperton's uh, first solo record, uh, Come to My Garden, uh, Rotary Connection. I was sort of toying with a Rotary Connection album in which Minnie Ripperton, you know, she sang with that group, um, but also um, a group that was produced by Charles Stepney, who had a very original take on composing, an original take on producing, and original ideas that were based on his... Um, views on contemporary European classical composers and electronic instruments. And he brought that actually to Terry Collier as well. He was Terry Collier's producer. Um, 
But the reason also why I chose uh, the Minnie Riperton album is that um, also plays a part in a book that I'm working on now that I can't, I'm not at liberty to talk about because of some contractual issues, but um, Minnie Riperton, you know, wonderful singer, uh, incredible range, um, you know, and just a really sweet uh, voice and wonderful songs, um, you know, with that she and Charles Stepney and her husband, Richard Rudolph wrote. So it's just a very unique voice, the likes of which uh, I don't think the world has seen since before, since or during. So Minnie Riperton come to my garden and definitely put that up there. For any listeners who don't know the mother of Maya Rudolph. That's yes. Yes. Her husband, Richard Rudolph, that hence Maya Rudolph. Um, in fact, in that, uh, you know, uh, Minnie Riverton hit, uh, loving you, which she did later. It was Maya, Maya. Yeah. It's great. And, and, uh, if you were paying attention in the episode, we also referenced, of course, Donnie Hathaway and the impressions as well. Sure. Um, and, uh, and man, we just, we wanted to just encourage you pick up his book, move on up Aaron Cohen. We love having you with you. And I love being here. So Thank you guys soon. so much. It is always a blast to talk to Aaron Cohen and uh, I really hope he comes on um, once everything gets worked out and he can tell us about his new book. Cause I think it's going to be exciting for our listeners. I want to say spending the time that we have spent talking about Superfly. We mentioned sweet, sweet backs. We mentioned shaft. Are there some other black exploitation? genre movies that you want to give some love to their soundtracks? Uh, I mean, those are the, definitely the quintessential ones. Like, you know, those two, I mean, if, if I'm going to do a top five, right, it would definitely be those two Superfly, Trouble Man by Marvin Gaye. And then fifth, Cross 110th Street is, is another great one. I think those would kind of be for me. And, I, and I'm not an expert necessarily you know um you would you know i'm sure there's a quentin tarantino list floating around that is much more uh of a deep cut record but i mean you can't you know you, you can do worse than those five uh the sweet sweet backs badass song uh which that's been reissued lately so that that's available um out there in your record stores uh shaft which used copies are popping up all the time for that one. I feel like that's a 
a much easier one to find. And Superfly, Trouble Man, which I think they did another reissue of that too, with like an alternate cover, maybe like a regular store day. And then, uh, yeah, across 110th Street, I would say those are uh, five really, really great ones. Micaiah, this is an album you and I both chose in a season where we have done a handful of differing picks from the same artists. You and I, I think both agree that this is the pick for Curtis Mayfield. And it kind of has to be. Yeah. So the question is then, does this album belong on our list? Is this a top hundred album of all time? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I think this is a top 100, one of the top 100 greatest artists. Uh, and I think this is his best album, even though my favorite is roots, as I said before. Um, yeah. But I, I think this is a, a culturally important album. Um, I think that it's, you know, for, for being the soundtrack that it is for being part of the, uh, that kind of movement in cinema history, I think it's important. Um, the songs themselves, right. We're talking about seven incredible songs and the two instrumentals that are also kind of an iconic kind of sound. Um, and I've said this about other things too, but I, I mean, I think we would lose credibility if we didn't have this record on here. I mean, I think that this, it's like a rules. It's, a, it's incredible. Um, yeah. And, and, and it needs to be grouped in there more with, in the conversation of talking about Prince and Stevie. And I think that Curtis Mayfield needs a little bit more representation and it's getting better, uh, but it needs to be more. Um, and I'm, and I'm, I, I, we've been doing this a lot this episode, but I think it's good. Um, Rhino, I think it was just released a double LP, like greatest hits compilation for Curtis Mayfield. That's on vinyl. I think for the first time um, they did a CD version uh, years ago. Yeah. Um, and it's a, it's a great compilation that has a lot of stuff from this era and even some uh, later seventies and even some of the eighties stuff, just a couple songs here or there, but, but they're the right ones. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, pick up that compilation. If you don't know where to start, get that. I mean, it's, yeah. it's, it's a solid, a solid compilation. I, I don't have it on CD or vinyl, but actually that the playlist for that uh, Rhino compilation is why I was listening to this morning. And it's, nice. that's, that's, that's a great pick. Yeah, it's great. Especially because Curtis, like if you're someone like me who wants the originals and, and you're holding out to find those, they're tough to come by. Um, you know, um, things like Curtis and, and Roots and you don't see a lot of them. Um, so you, when you see them, you can't think twice. You just got to grab and go when you see those in the record store and on the, in the used section. Well, because it's such a short album, we have already played all of the nine tracks from Superfly already in this episode. As we leave our guests, as we get ready to leave our guests, we first want to remind you listener to let us know what you think of this album. Reach out to us on Twitter at you forgot one pod on Instagram at you forgot one. Of course, our website is you forgot one.com. Well, I want to add one more thing also. Okay. So I've been looking at, or, you know, at our ratings on, on Apple podcasts, uh, maybe that makes me sound a little pathetic. I don't care. And we've had nine reviews, nine five-star reviews of that. And I keep every week I go back and I say, all right, we're going to get more. We keep asking. 
We keep asking for people to go rate and review. And every week it's just it's just nine. So I would like to see by the after this episode, just get us to even ten, you guys. I just let's see ten. Just let, let's get it up to at least one more. Uh, it would it would make me oh so happy. And of course, you know I don't like to beg, um, but I want to see something other than the number nine. But a deeper cut from from Ruth specifically. I talked about how there's there's an even sweeter side to Curtis Mayfield that I enjoy even more um, than what's on uh, Superfly. So let, let's do uh, Love to Keep You on My Mind. I love it. All right, we'll see you next week. Through loving you, I seem to feel a spirit deep inside of me, preciously guiding me. My woman of all women, dear to me, forever love me, for I need you constantly. Your face is so mysteriously kind I bet that love is partial to your side Somehow I do believe that you are mine Proving in a natural way Things that I could never think to say Stay